Hi, everyone. I'm Mel Butcher. And I'm Michelle Redfern. And we're behind the Lead to Soar podcast. We've got a couple really fun things to share with you. And the first thing we want to share is our colleague, Susan Colantuno. She started a podcast called Be Business Savvy. Be Business Savvy. We highly recommend it. And it's a short form podcast where you hear directly from Susan. It's like having a friendly mentor in your ear. So check her out at BeBusinessSavvy.com. Over to you, Michelle. Thanks, Mel. Well, two exciting things from me, along with Be Business Savvy. Number one, The Leadership Compass. My very first book is due for release on March 26, 2024. You can find out more about The Leadership Compass, what it's all about. Of course, it'll be your ultimate guide if you're an ambitious woman leader. You can find more about that at michelleredfern.com. And hand in hand with the Leadership Compass book is the Leadership Compass boot camps. I'm going to do one boot camp a quarter for 2024 for just six women at a time. And you'll be working through in three weeks. So, yes, it's short, sharp, and high impact. All of the elements from the Leadership Compass and my 40 years of executive experience. So, you'll cover BQ, EQ, and SQ, and you will be positioned to have a career that soars. Again, you can find out about the boot camps at michelleredfern.com, leadtosoar.com, or if you can't find any of that, just drop us a line and we'll point you in the right direction. You're listening to Michelle Redfern and Mel Butcher on Lead to Soar, bringing you the best leadership advice and mentorship from around the world. Learn more at leadtosoar.com. Hello, leaders. Mel Butcher here, and thank you for joining me today. Okay, a couple quick housekeeping items. Regardless of when you listen to this episode, courses inside A Career That Soars are going year-round, so you should be able to see a link to courses on the left-hand side of the menu when you're logged into A Career That Soars to see what's coming up next. Now, what I want to emphasize is that these are live courses, not recorded videos that you come and watch alone. You'll take a course with a cohort of other savvy women, you'll help one another grow, and you'll have your mind and capabilities grow with the master coaching of Michelle Redfern. In the future, maybe we'll see some other women instructors coming in. Regardless of who, we'll ensure that your experience is engaging and delivers the high-quality content we hope you've come to expect from a career that soars. Okay, onward to the episode. I'm pleased to be bringing you my second interview with Michelle Redfern. Here, Michelle gives us insights into the leadership mindset and what leaders have to really think about and excel at at different stages of a career. We talk a bit about the double bind, and we uncover a couple extra topics that we'll dive into in future episodes. And now it's my great pleasure to bring you Michelle Redfern. Michelle, thank you so much for joining me here on the Lead to Soar podcast. Very nice to be back on our podcast and to be interviewed by you, Mel. Thank you. Absolutely. So last time we talked about your background and we went through quite a bit of your bio and I thought today we would dive into 
some advice. So what I want to ask first is, can we talk about some of the typical advice that women get for their career journey, the advice that Susan, author of No Ceiling, No Walls, would call perhaps important or relevant, but incomplete. Yeah, and we we also call it the, the conventional advice that's given to women. And if we think, uh, the way I like to illustrate conventional versus strategic advice or the advice we really want women to get or more uh, women to get um, is to explain it through the, through the lens of our three-part leadership definition. So leadership is using the greatness in you to achieve and sustain extraordinary outcomes by engaging the greatness in others. So the first one, first part is, is the greatness in you. So my personal greatness, my strengths, my attributes, my character, my worldview, uh, you know, the, the way I look at the world. And typically you would hear, it's interesting when I do, a, do this exercise in the, the leadership programs that I run for women, we often get lots and lots of descriptive words and phrases around this. So you'll have visionary, charismatic, decisive, confident, good communicator, you know, all, all of those kind of things, good values, integrity, courage. So that's that's your personal greatness. Achieving and sustaining extraordinary outcomes, the missing 33%. The descriptors for that are setting and executing strategy, innovation, achieving financial outcomes, results, those kind of things. And then engaging the greatness in others, that's the stuff that you do to really help other people march in alignment to the business's strategic and financial goals. And those people are not just the people that are that you lead. If, if you're in uh, people leadership, they're your colleagues, they're your stakeholders, your suppliers. They're the people that we, we have an ecosystem of folks who are helping us achieve and sustain the outcomes for the organisation and, and society more broadly. So when we look at those that three-part leadership definition, we know that the conventional advice that women get is over-indexed in personal greatness and engaging the greatness in others. And it is under-indexed in the missing 33% business strategic and financial acumen. So the advice that 97% of women get falls into conventional advice how to be personally great, how to engage the greatness in others, which is okay. It's actually important, but as you said, it's incomplete, Mel. And if women only receive advice aligned to those two components of the leadership definition throughout their career, that's why they're going to get to probably middle, maybe senior management. But unless they're starting to build, develop and demonstrate those skills around business strategic and financial acumen, they are likely to become stuck. So I want more women to know about the advice that they also should get. So we're not saying that, you know, how to engage your teams and be a great communicator and be a team player and have a passion and a goal and have integrity. They are really important pieces of advice, but it'll only get you so far. And that, that's why we talk about the missing 33% and how women can be more alert to and pay attention to and help shape the advice that they get. Today, I was participating in an online virtual conference, and one of the sessions was about leadership. 
And inevitably, the discussion pretty quickly went to what is management versus leadership and is one better than the other, et cetera. I wonder if you might want to comment on what's often missing from that type of conversation. Mm. I find that what frustrates me about these kind of conversations is that everything is seen as so binary. It's either or, where for me, it's and, and. Leadership and management go hand in hand. They are different and there's there's no doubt about it. Uh, Management is getting stuff done well. The way I describe it is, have you ever reported to someone that you just think is amazing? They're so, they're charismatic, they're, they, they make great decisions, they set a vision. You know, you just walk over hot coals of them, but man, you, they never respond to an email. They don't approve your leave approvals in time. They don't sign off on documents. They never read stuff. You know, the administration side is just so, it's just so poor. <laughs> Um, And, you know, there's just stuff that needs to go with being a leader. And some of that is, is, is that management stuff. And for me, management is also so heavily linked to to leadership in that um, I'm giving you a really convoluted answer here, but I want to make sure I've got the right people in the right place at the right time, having the right conversations and doing the right thing for my organization. So that requires both leadership and management skills. And to look at that in a binary way or say one's better than the other or whatever is just rubbish. And look, put, put it this way, you Google leadership and you Google management, you, you know, you, you'll go down the, the rabbit hole and you'll, you'll never, ever emerge. And, you know, everyone's got an opinion and I'm not short on them. But, you know, there's just, the, there is stuff about being complete. And again, if I go back to leadership, is it is using the greatness in you to achieve and sustain extraordinary outcomes by engaging the greatness in others. Some of that is management too. Achieving and sustaining extraordinary outcomes, you know what you are going to have to do, um, evaluate um, supplier submissions and read all of the documentation. You are going to have to undertake due diligence of the accounts when they're presented to you, the financial statements every month, if you're a director or a leader in an organisation. You know, there's just, there's administration that goes with being a great leader and helping you to make effective decisions. So yeah, it's not binary for me. It's not either or, it's and, and. Going back to the missing 33%. So when did you learn about it and how did it impact how you thought about moving forward in your own career? I learned about it officially only in the last handful of years. In fact, good old Facebook threw me up a memory today. And this time, I was four years or five years ago, I was in New Jersey meeting Susan for the first time. So that's when I officially learned about the missing 33% or just slightly before that, because I read the book, No Ceiling, No Walls. And it was a giant bolt from the sky for me because I went, ah, and it was a bit like when I did my MBA, I went, ah, there's a name. There's the name for the stuff that I kind of inherently knew, but certainly in earlier parts of my career, I did not pay much attention to or wasn't given the advice to pay attention to, or I was given the advice and I probably ignored it. So officially four or five years ago, I should know that, I think it's four, four years ago is when I came across the missing 33%. And as I said, it was the biggest aha moment. I went, right, yeah, 
How did it change the way you decided to support women? I stopped doing some stuff that I'd been doing. So at that stage, I'd been running my business uh, as a side hustle for around 12 months. And you know what? I fell into the trap of conventional advice for the first first 12 months of supporting women. So I was really, you know, the, the confidence building, the Instagram memes, you know, telling people, women, what they needed to be more of or less of or whatever, but but at no point really overtly focusing on business and business outcomes. In saying that, I was very, very fortunate to be surrounded by what I would now call my personal board of directors, some women, including my wife, uh, another woman that I just love and adore, Judy Pridmore, uh, my business partner in my other business, Div Pillay, who were very, very clear on we're in business to do stuff and create outcomes. And these are my words, not theirs, but their messages, are, particularly over a period of time, were stop fluffing and start doing and start achieving outcomes because you are not here to make yourself feel good. You've still got a mortgage to pay, you know, an income to generate. And frankly, if you want to change the world, you're going to have to get much more serious than just following the crowd that has told women what to do in a conventional way for the last, well, since since the world began, really, women have been told what to do. So that's how I changed. I stopped giving fluffy conventional advice and I started giving, this is what you need to do to create outcomes for yourself, your business, whether you are an employee of the business or you own the business and, and for society in general. We are making this recording specifically for members inside a career that soars. And inside ACTS, there's three different circles. There's the emerging leaders, the leader circle, and then the... C-suite roundtable. C-suite roundtable. So directors and folks within a stone's throw of the C-suite. I'd love if we could get to maybe some tangible things for people in each of these groups. Maybe we could start with this concept of how leadership changes as you progress in your career. Yeah. And really timely, Susan and I were were talking about that just, just in the last week in our last conversation. So let's start at the start. So at a career start, as an individual contributor at the beginning of your career, you get to know your job. You know, it's your responsibility to know your job really well, to be for the business, to understand how your personal effort, tasks, actions create or contribute to the outcomes of the organ. Well, to your team, your business unit, your and, and obviously your your, um, your organization. And at that stage your fulfillment and gratification as an employee comes from your own personal effort and your accomplishments and your achievements within that individual contributor domain. And I'll come back to the advice that's appropriate for each level. And I'm probably going to talk about the advice that needs to stop. (laughs) And you probably get a sense of what needs to stop. But as you move into the, the middle part of your career, so you're starting to lead people. You may be a supervisor or leading a virtual team or a cross-functional team and you're in that middle part of management. So you're right through to senior. That's the time when you have to 
start building or receiving fulfillment and gratification from engaging the greatness in others. And that's when you need to start spotting and developing talent and really focusing less on what gives you personal gratification or those things that gave you personal gratification and fulfillment as a, as a single contributor or individual contributor and saying, how do I engage the greatness in others to achieve and sustain extraordinary outcomes? And that's still around bringing people together to achieve or work in alignment to achieve the business's strategic and financial goals. So then when she moves into senior executive, and as you said, a stone's throw from the C-suite or in the C-suite, the role shifts again. And it is less around people management and more around an external focus. So looking at the external markets, looking at the, the headwinds and the tailwinds or those macro forces that are going to um, either help or hinder the organisation from achieving its strategic and financial goals. So the gratification and fulfilment that she gets and the activities that, that she undertakes are less on people management. Now, she certainly still has to lead people and, and be inspiring and all that kind of stuff, but it's uh, it's now about, it's really heavily focused and heavily indexed on the missing 33%. Business, strategic and financial acumen. How is she really shaping the business and setting the direction and ensuring it's being executed by those, those people in middle management to achieve and sustain those goals that the organisation deems as important? So the way I describe that and the way we often talk about it is leadership is additive and it's subtractive. As you move through your career, there are things that you need to stop doing, a little bit like the advice I had to stop giving to women. You have to stop thinking about my to-do. If you're moving into middle management, I need to stop thinking about my emails and the to-do list and the day-to-day stuff, and I need to make sure that my teams and my colleagues and, and those of us who are working together are moving in alignment towards the agreed goals. And then as, as she moves into those senior and executive roles, she's trusting that her middle managers are hearing the messages that she's giving about the internal and the external forces and direction that the organisation is going in. But she's building those strategic relationships both internally but particularly externally. So she's less focusing much less on engaging the greatness in others in terms of internally and looking at how does she use those skills to achieve and sustain extraordinary outcomes by engaging the greatness of others in an external environment. That's customers, it's investors, it's regulators, those really influential shareholders <laughs> and stakeholders to organisations. It's a much more upward and outward focused role. I'll give you an example, Mel. If, if I'm the captain of a really big ocean liner, I'm saying that because I get boats and ships mixed up, but anyway, because one fits in the anyway, whatever. If I'm the captain of an ocean liner, it's my job to be up on the bridge and looking at the horizons to see what's coming. I've got to glance down at the dials and make sure all of the KPIs, you know, all of the, the dials are in the right spots. I'm going to have regular check-ins with the heads of the different departments and the crews to make sure the customers are okay, the engines are running okay, the food's being done, entertainment, yada, yada. But my job is to stand up on that bridge and look out and really steer that ship to get those customers, the cargo, into port safely and delighted. 
Now, if if I came up through the ranks as an engineer, a mechanical engineer, and I went, gee, I love doing that and I love being on the tools. And I spend as the captain of that ocean liner and I'm spending all my time down in the engine room driving the mechanics who are probably more skilled than me now, uh, mad because I'm tinkering around with them. What's happening to the ship? Who's actually keeping an eye on all of the things that need to go on, both internally within the ship, but also, you know, are there pirates coming? Is there an iceberg coming? Is there bad weather? What's the next port? Uh, what are our regulations that we need to adhere to from a passport control? All that kind of stuff. So that's that's the analogy I used to say. When you're at the top, if you're still tinkering down in individual contributor land or even middle management land, your ship is going to be in, in strife. It's going to be in trouble at some point. So got to lose what used to give you gratification and say, this is now where I've got to focus. Hey folks, Michelle Redfern here. I want to talk to you about your mantle of leadership. Traditionally, when a queen is crowned, she dons the mantle and takes the staff of royalty. They're symbols of her elevated responsibility. Well, you're lucky because you don't have to wait for someone to give you your mantle of leadership. You can have it right now. And when you do, the path to advancement gets a little clearer. Our course, Your Mantle of Leadership, based on No Ceilings, No Walls, is a six-week program that's perfect for an emerging leader or a leader who's in a more senior position but has never had the benefit of leadership development. We focus on foundational leadership skills and the leadership challenges and opportunities and the successful moves from career start into early management positions. You can find your mantle of leadership in a career that soars under the courses tab. See you there. I want to go back for a moment to to something you said, and I'm going to pull up Susan's book, No Ceiling, No Walls, and I'm going to read us a small bit of that for our discussion. So this is towards the beginning of the book in a section called Anyone at Any Level Can Wear the Mantle of Leadership. And here Susan writes, Do you want to be a great leader? Instead of thinking that you are an individual to whom the company owes something, realize that you owe the company every contribution you can make to its success in the marketplace. Break free of thinking that you're acting for individual achievement break out of self-limiting ideas, and break through to a new understanding that you have a positional purpose, to lead others in support of the organization's goals. And you can do this no matter your level. And then later on the page, this is really tied to what you said earlier, she writes, wearing the mantle of leadership in business means that you understand and act on the fact that you are for the company and by extension, for the customer. So I had underlined this when I first read the book, and I think that this is a really important idea to highlight, particularly for folks that are at the individual contributor level, because I see this a lot with young professionals where the mindset is very much, how little work can I do and how much can I get out of my employer. How much can I get away with? Yeah. Yes. And that's definitely not a ticket to advance. I wonder if you want to comment on 
that concept and also the idea of wearing your mantle of leadership. Yeah. And I'll comment on it through the, in hindsight, what I now know is some of the best career advice I got when I was a very, very young leader. Of course, I don't think I paid enough attention to it at the time. So the advice I got, the context was I was 22 years old. I was a branch supervisor of a, like a lending, a, a bank, a small bank. And I'd come into leadership young, very young, obviously, but I know that I'd been spotted as talent because I did, I was for the business. I truly believed in the business. I believed in what we were doing and I knew inherently that I wanted to lead. My boss at the time was terrific and now he gave me two bits of advice, one which I have subsequently discarded because I, I don't think it's helpful, but in fact, he gave me lots of advice, but because the, the advice was as the, as the leader, you need to be the first in the door and the last out the door. And, I, and of course now I just think that that's just, that's rubbish. So that's, that's very dated. It was 1986. So let's, let's be clear. But the helpful piece of advice was, which is in line with what Susan says about wearing your mantle of leadership is, Michelle, treat this business like it's your own. Every decision you make, you are funding. So every decision you make, you, you've got to imagine that you're writing the cheque to fund it. And for Australians, that's dating me because we have so few cheques anymore. But anyway, now what that meant was really think carefully. And if you want to get more staff, who's going to pay for it and how are you going to pay for that? If you want to change the hours of the bank branch, What's that going to mean for customers? Um, If you want to, you know, really go soft on providing awesome customer service to our our members that come in into our our building society, what's that going to mean? You know, and so it was a, a terrific piece of advice, which I didn't, I know I didn't pay enough attention to in the in the context of what we now, what I now know, uh, the missing 33%. But I've got to say it also underpinned some inherentness in me where customer service was just in my was in my blood and for me customer has you know the customer is always right which you know that's an arguable statement but I'd grown up in an environment where my parents uh, customer and community was really really strong the first business I worked in as a very young person was a family a small family-owned business And I saw quite clearly that effort was, it wasn't them and they. I'm not being very articulate here, Mel, but there's no them and they, it's me. If it's meant to be, it's up to me. Or if it's to be, it's up to me. And I needed to show and demonstrate that I was for the business all the time, that I was really, really committed to this business growing. Now, as an individual contributor, what that meant for me, um, or even as a very young leader, so in that second part, you know, I guess chronologically I wasn't in the second part of my career because I was still quite young, but I was. I was, in, I was in junior management at that age. I was also ambitious and I, I worked out, again, pretty quickly to, to climb the ladder in those days meant that you had to demonstrate really overtly that you were good for the business that you really made a difference. And 
having an attitude of, hey, this, this place owes me something. Well, they didn't owe me anything. I owed them. They paid me every fortnight and I needed to earn that. And it's, you know, they're called earnings where you've got to earn, you've got to earn your wages. Uh, you're not paid to turn up and sit on your bum for eight hours a day or whatever you are. The company has invested in you to achieve an outcome for it. And, you know, that advice and how I, I do that, share that advice now, particularly to women in the first parts of their career is if you're ambitious and you want to get ahead and, you know, really work out, you've got to say, how do I make a difference in this organisation? What are the problems I solve? What is the difference that I make? And what is the value I create for this organisation? And living by that has meant that I've had a really brilliant career. I've got brilliant career on my mind because I've just been writing about my brilliant career at the moment. So <laughs> it, it's, it's, and it's such an identity shift and it's such an important identity shift. Um, but it's so important. If you want to be a leader, there is no they and them. There's no they and them. This is us. We are here to achieve and sustain extraordinary outcomes for this organisation. So first, first protocol is, is having that shift in your own mindset. The second is, hmm, my positional purpose. So what is it that they pay me to do around here? What is it that, it that is really important for me to do every day, every week, every month, every year to achieve or contribute to achieving the business's strategic and financial goals? So that's, that's my advice. A bit preachy, but, you know, I, I really get frustrated with the they and them. Oh, they should do this and, oh, look at them, uh, them up there or management. And I think, oh, my lordy, well, that, that is not the attitude. Right. I guess something to acknowledge here would also be if, if you feel that strongly in a negative way about the company and its leadership, perhaps you're at the wrong company and you need to seriously think about what your next step should be. Spot on. Spot on. You know, and and so the other side of this, because sure, there there are work environments that are not great. So I'm I'm not suggesting that people go, oh well, this is maybe it's just me. No, there are work environments that are not great. So I want to put that to one side because that's a very genuine consideration. That's a, that's a whole other that's a whole other conversation. But when you find yourself in a position that you think, oh man, I hate going to this place and I'm really not enjoying my job and I don't like what I do and I just kind of really can't find anything positive in the day. And where you do have a choice, because I acknowledge that not everyone's got a choice just to say, right, I'm quitting and I'm going to go and live the dream somewhere else. Really question, should, should you be there? And the other way I'd, I'd say that too is to people, and it's a little bit like, yeah, it's interesting, Mel, we were having a conversation the other day about leaders who actually don't want to lead. And I think, well, get out of the damn way and let someone else take that role who does because you, you're blocking. You don't want to be there and you're blocking someone else who does. So if you can't kind of do it for anything else, be selfless and say, I'm taking up the space that someone would really appreciate and I'm going to go and find the space that's right for me. Let's imagine our listeners are members for a moment. They Let's imagine someone who's successfully made this shift, which I think happens at that emerging leader level, and they 
have just moved into some type of leadership role, perhaps um, some type of management role for the first time. Talk to us about what shifts they have to make as they step into this new role. The first one that I'd say I would I'd like women to pay attention to is delegation and the the mindset shift and the internal struggle that we know so many of us, and I say us because I have struggled with it, to delegate. And when you're in that role, there, there's a couple of things going on. Yes, you're you're making a shift in terms of the tasks that you get done every day. You're now getting stuff done through and with other people rather than doing it yourself. You are there to lead and manage and coordinate a group of people's activities to achieve the outcomes, your positional purpose, the outcomes that you're paid to create. And we know from our research that when bosses consider what men are great at and what women are great at, they say women uh, exceed men in terms of engaging the greatness in others, with the exception of two things, and one of them is delegation. They're not perceived as being good delegators. Now, let me just put some caveats around this. Not all men, not all bosses, not all women. This is based on research uh, through Susan's former company, Leading Women. Uh, We've got thousands and tens of thousands of data points around this. So what, what's happening there? What's happening is when, when I'm moving from individual contributor into leading people, I've got to shift to how do I provide direction, both set and provide direction? How do I coach? How do I mentor? How do I lead? How do I assemble a team, a diverse team, and shape it so that it's working in harmony? So there's a whole bunch of things going on there that mean that I have to work in a different way than just doing my own job every single day. So I have to spot the talent. I have to spot the the greatness in the others. So what are people good at? Uh, What do they want to be doing? Where do they need to be focused? But what I shouldn't be doing is falling into the trap that I fell into, which was, oh, look, it'll just take too long to, to show someone how to do this. I'll just do it myself. It'll be quicker if I do it myself. And which is okay, you know, everyone all hands to the wheel in a crisis and yada, 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 but we are not, apart from 2020, we're not continually in crisis mode. And your role as a leader in that second part of your career is to develop people and develop the next leader. And if you're not teaching, if you're not demonstrating how to rather than doing, you are not in service of the organisation. You are not in service of the people um, who report to you because you're actually not developing that next oh my gosh okay um, wave we have to say that again right that we have to emphasize yep. this if if you in this role if you're not developing the next leader you're not acting in service of the organization absolutely you're absolutely not acting in service of the organization if you are not spotting and developing the talent So again, I am going to toot my own horn because what I have been very, very good at based on my aspirations and my ambitions, so quite selfish, is spotting talent and developing successes over the course of my career. Because I I know 
that in my, particularly as I became more and more senior, that I was likely to only occupy my role for a set period of time. Now, for me to go on to my next role, I needed to have someone, particularly in the same organisation, I needed to have someone ready to take my role. In fact, I needed to have two people ready. She's ready now. She's ready in two years' time. And if I'm not developing them, if I'm doing their work for them, how the hell am I developing? How am I getting my successor ready? And then how can I catapult myself into my next role? I have had women as recently as this year say to me, Michelle, I am so good at my role that I've been told I will never be moved because they can't afford to lose me. Now, there's two things going on there. Number one is, have you actively chosen a successor or successors and are you are you developing them and are you, you know, this is the pie mentoring. <laughs> are you exposing them to the people who are going to make the decisions about your next role? And we'll talk about pie mentoring in January when we when we do mentoring month. But the second thing is you're a risk to the organization. Your boss is saying, oh my God, I, I can't let Mel go because holy hell, we've got no one to replace. She is irreplaceable. And you know what? It's actually too hard. I don't want to go and train someone else. That's her job. And you know what? It's just easier to leave her there. Now, there's a bit going on there with gender dynamics as well, because really her boss should be going, I need to intervene here with Mel and say, Mel, your job is is to develop your team, to march in alignment with the, to, to achieve the company's strategic and financial goals. It's also your job to develop talent. Now, why are you still fiddling around in the engine room, my friend, when you need to be, you need to be on the next couple of floors up and bringing the the mechanics out so that they've got exposure to different parts of the business, different tasks, activities, skills, etc. So delegation is is you know pay attention. Pay attention at that middle level. Are you delegating? Are you developing? Because if you're not delegating, you are not developing the next your successor and the next leaders for other roles that that are coming up. And it is a trap that we fall into. Why do we fall into it? Oh, I don't want to be considered lazy. I don't want people to think I'm a shirker. I don't want to bother people. I I have not yet had that identity shift. I'm the leader. So it's my job to direct traffic here. It's my job to assign duties and tasks and keep people accountable. This is my job. This is my positional purpose. So that identity shift is so, that's the, if you're going to pay attention to anything, that we, there are many things to pay attention to. That would be the one thing. I'm so ridiculous because I say, now, everyone, pay attention. This one, this is the one thing, and then I'll say it five times when I remember <laughs> I'm talking. This is the one thing as you move from individual contributor into leadership, into those first-line leadership, please understand your mindset around delegation and get really comfortable with it because it will derail your career otherwise. Every time I get the chance to share this, I share it because it's applicable at multiple different levels. A mentor once said to me, moving up begins first in your mind. I know. And I, I the first time I saw you write that, I was like, yeah, fist pump. So true. <laughs> and, you know, the, putting on your mantle of leadership happens at every level. And I have written spoken lots. I have always considered myself a leader. Now, I don't think that that is necessarily the case for all women. Um, So I've always been very comfortable in that, oh, I want to be the boss. (laughs) I want to be the leader. I'm happy to be out front. And I understand and I certainly acknowledge that not everyone has that, that inner 
self-belief to start off with. Now, I think you need to recognise that and say, so what do I need to do about that? Because they and them, (laughs) if it's to be, it's up to me. So what do you need to do to shift your internal view of yourself? To your point, what do I need to do to get my mind in the right spot? Right. You're listening to Lead to Soar. Find information on upcoming events and learn how to join the network at leadtosoar.com. you about is this this idea the perception that women are not as good at delegation I feel like a part of this perception could have to do with the double bind or perhaps even women holding back on delegation because they're aware of the double bind and they don't want to be perceived as pushy or or those things Could you comment on navigating that in the context of delegation specifically? Yeah, I want to pick up first on on the the P word perception. So your career success is dependent on your proven and your perceived leadership skills. And you can prove your leadership skills. We we do that in all sorts of different ways in organisations. So we can get certifications, we can have scorecards that have got green all over them. We can get references. We can, you know, there's some artifacts that you can that you can develop and generate and, and hold on to that prove your leadership skills. However, when decisions are made about your career success by others, it is not just as much as I'd love it to be very objective, and it is not as subjective. So, there are people in your organisations who will have a perception of you. And if the perception of you is that of someone who's for the business, has got potential, is demonstrating her business strategic and financial acumen as appropriate to career stage, guess what? Things are, you know, things like, well, she needs to upskill in delegation and what have you. They are going to be chalked up as this is a development opportunity and we're going to do something about that. So I just wanted to really highlight perception is real. And this is where it then ties into the double bind or the mindsets of managers and dynamics and um, how women are, they are held to a different, higher standard than men are in many cases. So the double bind, you know, I actually think it's a triple bind because there's, you know, women get bound up in it as well. So because we're held to that different 
standard. And the more we talk about it, you know, it's a little bit like it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. The more we are held to these different standards, the more we adjust and alter our behaviour. So it does take a very resilient woman to just say, listen, I'm, I'm just going to get really good at, at uh, delegation. I'm going to put up with, whew, you know, what's she about? Um, or, you know, Mrs. Bossy Boots and, and those kind of comments. So it does take enormous resilience. And, and building your resilience to that kind of stuff is really important because you know what? It's actually not going to stop. I'd, I'd love, you know, people like me work to make sure it does stop. But let's face it, in the next, well, it's not going to stop in the short term. So women will encounter a set of standards where they're expected to behave in a certain way. And when they don't behave in that way, they will encounter resistance, whether it's passive or overt. So what do you do about that? What you do about it is, is that you get really, really good at your job. And you, and when I say get good at your job, you use the three parts of the leadership definition. And there is nothing like achieving and sustaining extraordinary outcomes by engaging the greatness in others to have people know, perceive that you are good at your job. You are a good leader. So the way to delegate for me, and, and again, as I said, you know, th this is not perfection because I have struggled with it over the course of, of my career, particularly in the early parts of my career as I was making those uh, adjustments, is to seek feedback. So the feedback can be in, in a whole range of different ways, but the very first thing for me is have a conversation with every single one of your team members to say what do they love doing the most and give them more of that. <laughs> and you know, and what do they want to do more of and what do they want to do less of? And then ask them to say, what do you want me to do more of and what, what do you want me to do less of? Build that rapport with your team. And I've got to say, when they respect you for engaging them in what, how they want to work well, delegation for me becomes so much less of an issue. The example, well, I won't give an example. It's theoretical, but, you know, I... I have worked for some really great people who have just simply said, this is what you're good at, go do it. But that I can see that within their teams that they've assembled, and particularly at senior levels, they've assembled people not like me who are different and different to me and like doing different things to me and have strengths in areas that I do not have. And guess what they're doing? They're building a diverse team, but they're allowing us to play to our strengths, get stuff done, but be very, very clear about what it is we need to get done and why. And then the ultimate is they got out of the way and just let me get on with it. That's kind of one theoretical part. But the flip side of this is, again, is, is around that mindset shift. If you want to be in service of the people that you're leading, think about your own experience. Do you like a micromanager? Do you like someone who interferes constantly or does your job for you? How does that make you feel? Someone steps in and does my job, go, what, am I not competent? Or, you know, what, so what is it that I'm supposed to do around here? What am I, chopped liver? So have a mindset shift. Say, if I'm, and I'm not a fan of the term servant leadership, I've got to say, because I don't really understand. And I think it's just a bit of corporate BS. <laughs> As Veronica Dealey says, she's one of the women I follow on Instagram. Don't be a, you know, it's really yeah. simple. <laughs> it's a good rule for life. Um, it's a good rule for leadership too. But anyway. So be like, be in service of those people that you're leading. How are you engaging their greatness if you are thwarting them from doing what they're good at? Well, and I think just to add a comment on that, 
I, I think if we individually think back to the managers whom we enjoyed working for the most, I think we can see that we enjoyed working for them not because they let us get away with being lazy, but because they engaged us in a way that showed us you bring value, here's how you can bring more value, and we'll have some fun doing it along the way. Those are the people that I think we look back on and think, wow, you know, I loved working with that person. Yep. I've I've talked before about uh, the, the guy who really, you know, got my career started, restarted. And yeah, he was a, my words, not his, but he was, his, his role, he recruited me three times and as a senior uh, manager and his, his perspective was, righto, Michelle, I'm throwing you in the deep end, go and have some fun. And uh, I'm standing sort of over there near the shore with a life preserver if you really need it. So his method was the sink or swim method, which I particularly like, but I accept that not everyone likes that. But for me, I, I will often say to people, look, work it out. I'm here if you need me. But I demonstrate that as in I, I want to say oh, I really am here. So, you know, you get regular check-ins. Where are we at? What do you need help with? But I love the what do you want me to do more of? What do you want me to do less of? Invite the criticism. And it might be, Michelle, get the hell out of my office. Please stop fiddling around with my customers. You don't need to be there. Trust me. You know, so it's authenticity, courage, vulnerability. What do you want me to do more of? What what do you want me to do less of? And you know what? Be damned with the double bind. People are going to criticize you. Look, the more senior you get in leadership, the more more open you need to be or or aware that you're going to have a lot of people going, well, I'd like to criticize your, uh, the, the, the way you're doing things. And you know what? If you're living your life through the lens of what other people think of me, says a reformed person who's used to be the uh, most ridiculous seeker of approval and people pleaser. It is liberating to leave that behind. Again, I'll come back to positional purpose. The company pays me. It is my duty to deliver ABC. Work out what your ABCs are. What does the company pay me to do? What is my job around here? And then do it really well. And if people want to criticize that, and the way you engage your team and, and have them do that, well, you know, we can talk about how to manage that later on. You know, it's like Brene Brown, I always, I always quote her, you know, if you're not in the arena with me getting your ass kicked, I'm not interested in your feedback. So, you know, if you're in the cheap seats, like, rack off. <laughs> interesting I had this manager that like there was just mutual loathing between us but I've got to say he he did teach me about point easy and point hard there's a point and it's based on the degree of difficulty and the time elapsed <laughs> you know that the, there's a problem at day zero and it's kind of on the scale of one to ten it's probably about a three on day 30 on the scale of one to ten it's become a seven on day 60, it's become a 10, so on. So you've got point easy to have a difficult conversation and you've got point hard. And in terms of people conversations, I have had people say to me, I've just had the most unbelievable performance review, so bad, 
but this is, why didn't anyone tell me six months ago or 12 months ago that I was being a fool or that I wasn't meeting? Why did they tell me now? Yeah. I'm going, oh my God. Oh my This gosh. is leadership 101. So, okay. just to button this piece up, this is important for all of you to hear because you are moving up and progressing in your career. So, it's not just you, it's not just you that needs actionable, useful feedback. It's the people who are going to be reporting to you in the future. And if you don't learn to have these difficult conversations that might involve you giving someone negative feedback, it's going to hinder your ability to lead. Yeah. And Mel, coming back to the missing 33%, when you anchor constructive feedback in, this is what we need more of, from you to achieve the business's strategic and financial goals, my goodness, that is, that is, for me, it's just so simple. Now, behavioural feedback is a little bit of a different kettle of fish, but still aligned. So, yeah, I agree. We, we need to have a, a deeper conversation about, about performance feedback. And, you know, you're there to lead. And again, positional purpose. I'm here. I'm paid to achieve and sustain extraordinary outcomes for the organisation. How do I do that? And what's my career stage that I need to do that at? All right. So to wrap up our conversation for today, let's talk about the next step, going from leader to basically the C-suite level. When when anybody um, or a woman makes this advance to this very high level, what changes and how does she need to shift how she's thinking about being for the business? The, the most, the simplest shift, oh, sorry, simplest, the, the, the simplest way I can describe the shift is thinking about inside the company versus outside the company. And that the shift is really understanding how do I position the company in the market or markets that we're in for success and what is my role in doing that. In senior and executive roles, you are more likely to be facing clients, uh, customers, shareholders, stakeholders, and stakeholders I I alluded to before, you know, that might be regulators. Um, it, It could be investor analysts. It could be community groups and all sorts of things like that. So you need to be in a position where you have uh, you are known to have a good handle on the external forces that impact your company, both negatively and positively. So your shift in terms of your focus, you know, what are the trends across, you know, um, the, the, the political, economic, social, technology and legal trends, yeah? Pestel analysis um, uh, that, that, that are impacting your company. What's your role in making decisions to position your company well? Um, what are your clients and your customers doing and what are their needs and how are you meeting their needs before they even know their needs? So innovation and, and creativity and really bringing innovation and a culture of innovation into the company, a strategic network being known as a person who has a very good strategic network, external strategic network. And this is where I want women to pay attention to networking. Networking is not going to conferences and after work events with kind of average quality wine and exchanging lots and lots of business cards. We're networking right now. 
strategic networking is connecting with and engaging the greatness in the right others. Who are the right others? And that that's the from a network perspective, who are the right others as you're in those very senior executive and C-suite roles, particularly externally, yeah, both internally but particularly externally. In very large organisations, your, your internal network and cross-collaboration across divisions will be important, but that external network. And what I'd, I'd like women who are aspiring to or who, who are making that transition to pay attention to is we hear feedback around she's really good at a job, but she's so focused on it that she doesn't lift her head and look up and out. It's a little bit, I'll go back to my ocean liner again. So she's in, she's leading customer service for the ocean liner and she's got all of the customers happy and she's doing lots of activities and what have you, but she hasn't yet really positioned herself to lead from where the captain is right now because she hasn't really visited the bridge. She hasn't looked at all the dials that need to be in the right spot. She's not looking at the horizon. She's not demonstrating yet that she understands what it's like to lead at that next level. And the way that plays out is, and there's a great quote in No Ceilings, No Walls. Here we go. By working so hard to get great results, women often take away time from building critical business alliances. Given the opportunity to stay in their offices and make sure their report is perfect or going out of their office and talking to Joe about his business, women are more likely to do their own work. And that's what holds us back. Page 145, No Ceiling, No Walls. You're welcome. This is what women look at any career stage, but most particularly in the, the, the middle part of their careers, they must pay attention to their strategic networks. They must start to cultivate business alliances that make sense and that help you achieve and sustain the extraordinary outcomes that you are paid to do by your organisation. Networking is working. Absolutely. Networking is absolutely working and, you know, and you don't have to be in a sales role. You don't have to be in a customer-facing role. It is super, super important. If you're in technology, you know, how, how are you working at what your competitors are doing? What technology are they tapping into? What new technology partners are there out there that maybe you can get to before the competitors do? In HR, strategic networks if I can source really good talent because of my networks guess what number one I'm getting the best and the brightest people to come into my organization on behalf of my organization but I'm also saving a bucket load of costs because strategic sourcing of top talent is expensive yeah there are just so so many examples doesn't matter where you are in the organization strategic networking is working on that note I want to thank you for joining me today. This has been a wonderful session and I've been taking notes and I've got multiple ideas for future episode topics. So this is great. Awesome. Thanks, Mel. I uh, I, I like the way that you stretch my brain because I, as you may have um, already observed, I, I do like giving advice, but I do like giving it in the context of where I haven't got it right in my career. And I've, I've said often before, I said to Susan, where were you 25 years ago when I needed you? Well, she's here now. I'm here now. You're here now. And we're here for those women who need us. That's right. 
Thank you for joining us for this episode of Lead to Soar. We sincerely appreciate your honest, positive reviews. You can leave questions at leadtosoar.com for Michelle and Mel to answer on future episodes. Until next time, we hope you'll use what you've learned here and lead to soar. Thank you.